You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Hello, and welcome to Uncorking a Story, a podcast that highlights stories from people who are making a difference in the world today. I'm your host, Michael Carlin. Today's interview is with Steve August, founder of Revelation and now chief marketing officer at Focus Vision. But before all that, Steve was a singer-songwriter with a pretty eclectic background. He was a dude in the truest sense of the word who suffered from, as he calls it, career attention deficit disorder. He was into clay animation, video documentary, and webmastering in the very early days of the internet as a commercial medium. Prior to helping his wife Kimberly in the market research business, he was in museum exhibit development. But I think it's people with those types of backgrounds who have the ability to see the world just a bit differently than the rest of us. They can spot problems that the rest of us can't see and have the ability to put thought into action in order to pursue solutions. So I need to pause here for a second and just address something. Um, my last two interviews were with very different types of people. So one was with Wayne Lavender, who had a foundation for orphans where he was supporting orphans in the most poorest parts of the world. And the other uh, was with Allison Yacht. And her story was amazing. Uh, she founded a company to uh, provide hoodies to kids with cancer. Um, and it's hard to compete with orphans or supporting kids with cancer. Um, nevertheless, I, I do think that Steve's story, while it is more of a business story, is very inspiring. And uh, if you know anything about me, which many of you probably don't because we've never met, but I'm a sucker for a good story featuring a guy who feels as if there's a better way of doing things, creates a new technology to help solve that problem that he's identified, and then sells his company to a bigger firm who sees the value in what he's done. So, yes, it's a business story, but this is a story where the good guys win. And I've met Steve August a number of times, and I can tell you, Steve is a good guy. I uncorked his story while we were both attending a conference out in Los Angeles. You're going to hear some chatter in the background, but I think that's pretty cool because it provides a bit of a flavor of where we were. And anyway, uh, without any more blabbering from me, you don't need to hear me talk anymore. Uh, please enjoy my interview with a very eclectic Steve August. Um, Steve, yesterday you were mentioning at um, you were speaking, and you said you're introducing. Who are you introducing? It was the Young Professionals Group. So that's the uh, QRCA every year. Uh, really uh, tries to encourage and inspire uh, younger research professionals, uh, and set up an award uh, that helps them, you know, come to the conference and and further their career. So Focus Vision was a, a sponsor of that. So I introduced the group yesterday, the group of winners. When you were doing your introduction, you mentioned you you had taken that stage or you had gone to your first conference. How many years ago? It was 12 years ago, 2005. 
Okay. And it was actually right here in the City of Angels over in Beverly Hills. Uh, that was my first presentation uh, to the QRCA conference and to QRCA. And I was actually a little terrified. Why were you terrified? Because I was standing up there uh, and talking about online research in a new way. I was talking about it as, you know, a way to connect with people, a, uh, a way that that it was beyond or or more than just recreating a focus group facility online. There was just this opportunity to access people's lives, the moments of behaviors and emotions that naturally unfold when people are, are living their lives. And I had been warned that the QRCA was an organization uh, that was a little resistant uh, to things that weren't focus groups. And, and, um, uh, and so I was prepared to get a lot of kind of pushback because uh, I had heard that other people who are suggesting online, you know, we're going to get pushback uh, about like not having nonverbal cues or, you know, being able to talk to people, that real-time interaction. But it turned out, actually, that people were very receptive to it. Uh, and I think part of it was because I was able to lay it out in a way that made sense, you know, uh, in a research context. And uh, But that was where uh, Revelation really began uh, to start getting traction. And the next year in, in Atlanta came back, and the, the first official version of Revelation was just coming out. And I, had, I hosted uh, a, uh, a training session the Sunday before. Two people showed up. It was uh, Christian Schweitzer from mm-hmm. Beacon and Ted Kendall from Triple Scoop. Sure. So, so but if, if I'm thinking 2005, I, mm-hmm. online research, even online qualitative, was still pretty much in its infancy. I mean, back then you had you know the asynchronous tools, you had you know very basic basic bulletin board type tools, and you had basically chat based you know AOL. Think about AOL chat, right? Mm-hmm. AOL chat based focus groups and. Neither one of them really, in my opinion, kind of lived up to the promises that, you know, they were positioned as, you know, that, of course, you know, the big thing was you don't have to get in an airplane. It can save money and travel, but the real cost savings weren't necessarily there. And I think I, I, I remember feeling at the time, hey, this isn't really a cost game. This, you know, you can't really position this cost wise. It's got to tap into something else. But that's something else I don't think was really realized in 2005. And then tell me more about the origin of Revelation then because uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear that story. Yeah, well, I, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I was, I was feeling the same thing. Uh, I was working with my wife who was actually a QRCA member before I was, uh, the original researcher in the family. Was uh, she a, a, a moderator, yes, a traditional yes. moderator? Yes, but her specialty was in-homes, in-depth ethnographies. She wasn't a group moderator. Um, she really liked going into in people's environments and really seeing what was going on. And uh, the way Revelation got started is I was helping Kimberly, my wife, out on the business. And I would see her put together these paper diaries ahead of these in-home visits. And it would be an elaborate process of, uh, you know, printing them out, going to Kinko's, sending them out, uh, you know, and recovering them, going through with people, and then trying to figure out how to integrate all that information uh, when it came time to report. And it was right around the time that blogs were becoming part of the landscape. And I thought, paper diary web diary, maybe we could make this easier. And so we started playing with off-the-shelf blogging systems um, because I couldn't find anything that would do what I wanted to do. There was, as you said, there was bulletin boards uh, that were just, you know, basically your, your 
online chat, and neither of those things really fit what we were trying to do. We were trying to not necessarily replicate a method per se, but we were trying to take advantage of that opportunity of the, you know, to fulfill the mission, which is understand people and answer business questions. And the technology was giving us this new access to people's lives. And so we started playing with, with the blogs uh, as kind of support for the my wife's ethnographies, ethnographic visits. And as we started to do that, we started to notice that we were getting a lot of expression. And we were getting it as it was happening. Right? We didn't have to wait till we got to the interview. All of a sudden, we saw who was who was keeping a diary, uh, and we saw what we were getting. And we also saw we were getting better prepared to come into the in, in, into the situation with into the observation with the uh, the participants. So our eyes started to open, and we I remember our first research project we did because we wanted to talk about it and kind of test it. I actually looked back on this uh, a, a few months ago, and it was called the Parenthood Project, and we had uh, new parents, and we wanted to understand what was the big difference between before being a parent and after being a parent. And I remember writing the report and what our objectives were, and our objective. And some of them were so simple. They were like, will people share? Will they post a picture? Will they engage? Will they do it? And it, it almost looks silly now because they gave us so much amazing information. I still use artifacts from that uh, original study to say this is, this is the power of what you can do. You know, it's, it's interesting when, when, when I think about it, just going back to those original asynchronous like bulletin boards, that, you know, they, they, they were, of course, a tool that had been used for forever in the, in the online space. So if you were a member of you know, all of those old bulletin board systems, I mean, I remember dialing up, because I'm a nerd, but I remember dialing up in, like, the, maybe the late 80s, early 90s to those, like, BBS systems. Sure. And that's where some of the, the, those early, early research tools were kind of inspired by, mm-hmm. not necessarily thinking of a task in mind. Mm-hmm. But I think what Revelation did that was so special was they really thought, or you guys really thought of, hey, you know, people don't really just think about answering questions. Like, if you're just going to have people answer questions online, you're not really capturing what's powerful about the medium. Right. And the way people had na- had had started to use it, like social media, like you mentioned blogging, you know, sharing their lives in that way. So, you know, kind of taking it, and just turning around a little bit, I think, was what was so powerful about kind of what, what you guys were doing at, at Revelation at the time. Right. And I think the word that you used was medium, and I think that's a really important word. Everything, you know, each type of this, these research uh, is a different medium. So in-person is its own medium. Telephone is its own medium. Online asynchronous is its own medium. And what we really thought about it when we were doing this was not just the technology, but how do you best utilize this medium? Each medium gives you something um, that you can use, and, and it's got strengths that it's really good at and things that it's not as good at. So in person is the gold standard, right? You want to you see the nonverbals. You can actually see what's going on. There's nothing like being in person with somebody, but you can't sustain it, right? You can't be with people all the time. And a lot of times the things you're interested in learning about happen when researchers aren't there. So the asynchronous online world of Revelation was, wait a minute, so we don't have we lose the in-person touch, but we gain access, ongoing, sustained access to these moments. So how do we get people to do that? Uh, and what are the what are the ways that you can put people in position to essentially be your camera, right? Rather than the question-answer probe uh, conceit that is 
appropriate for real-time in-person interaction, we realized because it wasn't that, we needed to set the table in a different way. So you, and we could leverage some of the, you know, things like projective techniques, the photo metaphor, things like that. But it's the difference between asking somebody, you know, what's in your refrigerator and saying, okay, we want you to give us a photo or a video tour of your refrigerator. Tell us what's in there. Show us what's, how you're organizing it and, uh, you know, what's been in there for six months and hasn't been thrown away or consumed. Yeah, I mean, I remember, like, when, when I, um, my old way of thinking right, was, was that in-person, in-home ethnographies were the gold standard because, man, you're, you're in their house, you're seeing how they live, you got you can walk around, you could point at the things on the refrigerator and say, tell me a story about why that's here, that kind of stuff. That's all great. Mm-hmm. What I quickly realized was there's a couple of dynamics that happen um, that we really didn't give too much thought to. So the first was you're only in that house for a couple of hours. And, you know, if it's, if it's during the day, the kids are typically, they're probably not home. Or they've arranged, you know, the, the, the person you're interviewing has arranged for child care. Right? So you're, you're missing that slice of reality. Mm-hmm. You're not seeing the struggle in the early part of the morning to get the kids ready for school and fry an egg at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the house, I would find that the houses were typically a lot cleaner than I would have expected, right? So there's been some, you know, sanit- you know, sanitizing of the environment because no one wants to welcome. But that's the other thing. You're coming in with, like, two other people and a videographer, right. and that just is all sorts of weird for some people, and they, they actually close up. And people used to think, hey, we'll do the interview in someone's home, and it'll be a lot more natural than doing it in a facility, but in reality, people are clamming up. They're worried about the video guy who just went to the bathroom. I mean, it's, it's a thing. So when you think about using tools, uh, online tools, to kind of come into that world a bit more, not necessarily totally replace Mm -hmm. the in-person interview, but to supplement, Mm -hmm. complement it. That's where I think the true power can be. Yeah, and I I think that's dead on. You know, it isn't isn't an either-or proposition. It's really about we have these medium, we have these tools, how do we get the answers, right? And everything else is, is subsumed to that. So, uh, you know, you want that unimpacted experience. You want that to come across. Uh, so, you know, leading, you know, having a, a lead-up, a mobile diary or an ongoing diary leading up to an in-person visit is, uh, gets the best of both worlds. Yeah. Uh, and you can do that with groups. And we've just seen it be, you know, uh, just really impactful in, you know, bringing to life both sides of that equation. Because it is true, you, you know, I think there was a, a, you mentioned the cleaning, and it makes me laugh, because I think we had a cleaning study once, and we showed up, and they're like, oh, we just cleaned up. And it's like, oh, man, the cleaning was the part we wanted to see, right? That's right. So uh, it is a little bit more unobtrusive, or a lot more unobtrusive. There is an interviewer or a presence and, a, and uh, an impact that that makes. Great, great observers and, and moderators can can really, you know, uh, mitigate that. But, you know, having people document themselves, and if you can get them in the frame and understand, get them to understand what you're trying to capture, uh, it can work uh, amazingly well. And the other thing that, uh, as a byproduct of that, uh, kind of the best ways we've seen when it works great is when you're just having the person learn about themselves, and then you're all just sharing in that learning. And we've seen, we've seen great examples of that where there's one a financial study where uh, we had people on an ongoing diary during the holidays. 
financial shopping, where their money's going in, how you know, all this, you know, tracking their money. And so Christmas comes and goes, and the, the research team says, you know what? We, we've been at this since Thanksgiving. We're going to give the team, uh, the participants a break. And so they sent out the, the message, say, hey, I'll take a break, and we'll pick it up in January. And a few of the participants wrote back and said, can we keep going if we want? Because we're learning so much about how we're spending our money. And it's, it's just been a great experience in that way. And I think that's that's the best is when participants actually get to learn about themselves and we get to, to benefit from that learning. I've seen it happen in, in healthcare too where, you know, I would engage, um, let's say, patients who suffer from Crohn's disease and they actually wound up taking the conversation off into directions that I would never have gone to because of the interaction we allow them to have with each other. And it's almost like a support community is building up. You're watching a support community build up, and you're learning just as much from what they're naturally talking about and the questions they're asking each other and the reactions they have than you are with your the own questions that you're you're posing. That's so really, I mean, it's 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 a really powerful way of uncovering insight. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I think Yep yeah, also points out the uh, another aspect of, of online that is tough to do in person is that interaction uh, between participants is a controllable option. You can have people be, you know, going along their own path and then decide to open them up to others. And, um, and you can decide when that happens and use that to the best advantage. So sometimes you want people to be, uh, you know, very uninfluenced. Uh, and other times you really want exactly what you got. You want to see what's if they could talk about anything to people who know exactly what they're going through in an environment where they're given total permission to just express, which is a lot of what you know research in general provides people. It's, it's like one of the I think services that qualitative research, whatever form offers, is pe- uh, you know a free form for people to be, you know, say what they they really think. Um, to see that happen is it, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Just to, to, to pause the research talk for a second, I, I just want to ask a question. There's a reason why I'm asking it, but are, are, you, are both your parents still around? Are they alive? They are, there? yeah. Do they know what you do for a living? They do. Do they get it? Do they understand it? Mostly. Uh, it's funny. We were uh, – I was working on a commercial or a uh, – um, yeah, it was kind of a, a little commercial uh, at Focus Vision, and it was uh, a riff on the Think Different uh, campaign from uh, way back with Apple, and yeah. it was like, this is for the, the research geeks and, the, you know, for the insights pros and, uh, you know, for the people who are constantly thinking up ways to understand other people. And then one of the lines that I didn't, we didn't end up using was, this is for the people, uh, you know, that uh, even though their fam- friends and family don't actually understand what they do, they're, you know, creating you know, amazing understanding and helping the companies of the world make uh, better products and communicate better. But it's it's hard to explain uh, yeah. to people because they, they cue on the marketing and marketing research. They do marketing. Right. And I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of researchers. Is This is common, right? And, and at a certain point, they give up. They just say, I'm in marketing, <laughs> right? Or, you know, surveys and focus groups, I, I kind of do that. My um my parent I mean I've been in this business now for 22 years, and you know w- whenever my mother introduces or my father for that matter introduces us to anybody like their friends, this is Jimmy he's a lawyer that's my twin brother, 
This is Mia. She runs a dental practice. This is Greg. He owns two liquor stores. This is Michael. We have no idea what he does. <laughs> and I'm like, I tell story. I, I talk to strangers, and I tell stories about it. Yeah. Like, I, I've boiled it down to, like, mm-hmm. those components. But what did you want to be? I mean, think, I mean, obviously, you, you founded Revelation, um, sold it. But what did you want to be when you were younger? Like, if you, if you could, like, go, if you can get back into the DeLorean, right, hit 88 mm-hmm. miles an hour and go back in time to when you were, I don't know, 15, 16, what did you want to be? Was it a market researcher or was it something else? No, I had no clue about market research. Uh, the only reason I, I got into it with my wife, Kimberly, uh, was a design researcher. And so I, I kind of started to learn about the industry from, from there. But I... I I was all kinds of things. I had career attention deficit disorder for most of my life. Uh, everything from clay animation to video documentary to uh, I was in, in bands and a singer-songwriter for a lot of years. I was uh, uh, in multimedia CD-ROM when that first came out. Mm-hmm. And then I was in webmastering and, and the, the first uh, go with the web when that came out. And then business intelligence systems when that came out. And then I, I chucked it all away and was working at museum exhibit development uh, when I ended up uh, joining Kimberly in, in her business and, and getting into market research. But I don't, I don't think I had a thing. I think I wanted to be in a band or, or, or play music, but that, that was about it. You know, I just, you know, just didn't have it. I want, you know, looking back, if I had, I wish I could have been an NBA player, but, you know, I wasn't uh, genetically gifted. Clearly you've enough. got the height, I yeah. mean. <laughs> well, well the, fortunately, the lack of height was compensated uh, for with, uh, you know, a lack of speed and <laughs> lack of coordination. So it's all good. So you said you were a singer-songwriter? was, well, yeah. So like, if, you, if you remembered the, the names of any of the songs you wrote, oh yeah, what's one name? Uh, one in a Thousand Nights, King of the Western World, Northern Borders. One in a, what's One in a Thousand Nights about? It's it's a, it's kind of a, a throwback to that that uh, um, it's kind of a story song, you know, of just you know telling the story of somebody telling the thousand and one nights. Yeah, uh, it was like the first ba- first song my band in college did uh, wrote together. So I wrote the music, and the uh, other guys in the band wrote the words. So what happened with the band? I mean, what uh, did, did you did you keep it going for a while? Or? Yeah, yeah. We we it was actually thirty years ago this year that that we formed up at college and we we were we did it for about seven years was it in a band it was called falling august falling august you can find it at fallingaugust.com that's a really good name yeah not bad there's another one now another band has come out uh, called falling august but well you can you, we have the domain we have you, the dot com you can become tripping august yeah we could that could give a different connotation altogether yeah but we had some fun success i mean we opened for the wallflowers uh, we oh, opened yeah, for Jacob, uh, Jacob Dylan's band, right? That's right. Back in, uh, I think it was 93, 94, before, you know, the Bringing Down the Horse album. Uh, so they hadn't blown up big yet, but, you know, it was Jacob Dylan, so yeah, uh, he had a name. And uh, Miracle Legion we opened for. And then after the band broke up, I, I started doing singer-songwriter stuff on my own and moved over to San Francisco and uh, met a person, like, the first night I was there, and she ended up uh, covering a couple of my songs, Um which ended up getting on a television show, uh, The Division, an old uh, Lifetime cop show. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, so I actually got some royalty checks from, from uh, Paramount. And Very every, cool. Every now and then I get an ASCAP check out of the, out of the, out of the blue because it, it played somewhere in the world, <laughs> like for $102 or something. It's amazing like that. how they track that. Like, how do they know? 
I have no idea. Oh, oh the, actually, the television stations have to report um, that you know what what uh, episodes got played, and and people track that. And that's what ASCAP and BMI and all those performing rights societies or that's, they're set up to do that. Yeah. All right, so let's go back to 2005. You're standing in front of all these researchers, and you're scared to death that they are going to kind of reject you or be resistant. Mm-hmm. Sounds like they weren't. No. Uh, it was well-received. Uh, and um, I think part of it was because I set it up uh, as a researcher would. You know, I said, you know, this is what we're trying. Ultimately, here's the goal, right? We want to understand people. Regardless of the methods that we use, that's what we want to get to. So it behooves us to try to get uh, to the moment of experience as best we can. Because as soon as you leave that moment of experience, things start getting processed in the brain and rationalized and and all the things that that make it tough to really understand what was going on at that moment of decision. And uh, and technology is, is not a replacement for research. It's just a tool. And it, it's an opportunity, and I think that resonated with people. Um, and the fact that it was a, it was very much teaching, like, and here's how we did it. Here are the activities that we used. Here's the structure of the study, and people opened their eyes and were like, "That makes sense." Um, and that's how it all started. So that was what 12, 12 years ago. Twelve years ago. Oh my gosh. Uh, what 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 have what have been been the biggest innovations you've seen in those twelve years? Mm. Biggest innovations is, is uh, so that was two years before iPhone. So the the iPhone was, and, and smart, you know, usable smartphones. So I had a Motorola Q before the iPhone came out. So I say usable, uh, you know, mobile phones and app-based mobile phones uh, were, you know, far and away the, the biggest impact. I mean, it's, we're still getting there in research, but ultimately that, that was just a new way to carry information, and, and, and it was in the hands of everybody. Um, otherwise, um, there's been a lot of kind of incremental things um, and things that have come and gone, it feels like, like uh, prediction markets were all the rage for a little while, and then they, they've kind of uh, uh, dive uh, down. Um, uh, uh, social media was going to replace everything, and now it's kind of – it has its place yeah. as kind of a, a listening kind of warning system. Um and a distant early warning. Yeah, I, you know, I, I struggle with social media as mm-hmm. a um, informative tool mm-hmm. because I think about, and I, you know, I, I used to wrestle with this with with certain clients, but it's like who out there is blogging or actively discussing credit card rewards beyond, hey, I found a great deal, right. or hey, get this card because you can get X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, who, like, how do you make sense of that, and how do you know who's actually saying it? Yeah. I, one of the first papers I presented was for the uh, market research event back in 2003, I think it was. Was that in, um, in L.A.? In, it was uh, in San Francisco. City? It was San Francisco. It hadn't moved to L.A. Okay. at that point. And they um, – I was on an ethnography day, and we had done – we had been asked – I think it was uh, Bill McElroy from, from Socratic yeah. had asked uh, me and Kimberly to come up with something uh, interesting. And we, so we started studying these online groups. Um, it was a Yahoo group, a, uh, a news group, like the old school 
Usenet news group, and it was a online community of digital creative photographers. And uh, so, and, and the idea was, I, wa- I sucked everything down, and I wanted to see well, what what do we get. And um, it was a very manual process, but I saw that not everybody's word in the community was given the same weight. There was people who came into a community, ask a question, and you never hear from them again. You had your your loyalists, um, your 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 residents, I think I called them. Uh, and but the, the the overwhelming sense that I got was there's so much noise to signal. There was so so little useful information compared to how much unuseful information. And you magnify that on the web, and you know there was, you know, Buzzmetrics and other people at the time who are who are doing it with uh, more sophisticated technology. But I just couldn't, I couldn't understand. Uh, and I tried to market this as an offer. And I couldn't understand how you could how you could map it to a, to a topic. So I had one company interested in doing it, and they were a paper company. And I was like, nobody talks about paper. Uh, and I had to be really creative. And it was like uh, there's this whole world of thrift. Uh, people who are thrifty and reuse everything, and they talk about a lot about paper, but that's a really narrow audience. Right. So in terms of I have something I want to study, I'm going to go to social media and learn about it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a tough proposition for a lot of you know, categories. Now, if you want to think about it as kind of desk research or kind of an, if you're like a pharma company or a consumer goods company – like Honest or something like that, where somebody posts something on Twitter and all of a sudden you have some controversy or uh, a problem, then it's an early warning system. It's, it's kind of like the weather buoys out there, you know, picking up El Nino temperatures. But it, you, you can't really use it to, as a primary research method, you know, in the way that you would do it. At some point, you have to actually talk to people. Right. Wait, so we, before we, we went in the DeLorean, we went back in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go ahead in time, five years, ten years. Where do you see the qualitative business going? Where do you think the big innovations are going to come from? What are some of the biggest unmet needs out there now? Yeah. Well, I think the fundamental tension in qualitative research right now is what it has to offer is the depth and understanding um, that takes a little time to generate. Right, it's not an auto, It's not a process that's easily automated, at to, where you can get this, uh, the same level of depth and richness of understanding, uh, and easily automate that. It's nuanced, right? It's interpreted, and yet the world wants to move faster and faster. Um, and so, the the two things that I think are going to impact that are uh, automation in terms of one automating recruitment um, into uh, a system or into a project and then even bigger is how can we use the AI tools that are coming out uh, that always feel like a few steps away right when it comes to text analysis and understanding but how can we get them to get us a huge head start on what we've got uh, in front of us or what have we developed so the the analogy I like to use is Facebook right Facebook can uh, suggest all these people that you know out to however many connections that you have in the world. And it can, it can do that, you know, almost instantly. What it can't do is tell you if you want to be in touch with those people. It can't tell you if that was the bully and what that was your nemesis uh, back in school or was your long, you know, unrequited crush. It doesn't, you know, so there has to be this confluence of 
of a machine help to like identify patterns within the data that make sense that then people can actually assign meaning to because that's that's the breakdown machines are super strong at finding patterns if programmed well right but they suck at assigning meaning to things they just don't do that people assign meaning to things but it's really challenging we're not great at taking huge corpuses of information and pulling out what are the patterns so there has to be that confluence of AI and text analysis and pattern recognition getting to the point where we trust it and presenting us uh, potential patterns or potential areas of interest so that we can then quickly assign meaning and then bring that to uh, decision makers. So you, um, you've had, you know, objectively speaking here, and this isn't to blow smoke, but like a very successful career. I mean, you've done things that few people have done, gone from, let's say, I'm going to simplify it, playing in a band, having a bunch of different interests and sort of careers before starting Revelation and then selling it to, to Focus Vision. Um, I'm sure you've learned a lot of lessons during that time period, uh, some that you may care to forget, but some that you know probably made a lasting impression. If you could give your younger self some words of advice about um, about life. So, you know, mm. let's say, you know, you're, you're 15, you're 12, I don't know. Whenever whenever you feel like, because we all, we all go through that period when we're not as confident as we are, perhaps, as, mm -hmm. as we are right now. What would you tell yourself? Like, if you could write a letter to yourself, your younger self, what are some of the things you'd say? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, things that come immediately to mind is really take the time to understand the potentials of whatever you're starting. You know, if you're going to start something, understand what what it is the path can be through that. Um, and then I would say um, the trick in life is to know what you really want and, as opposed to what you think you want. And that's that's hard when you're young you haven't experienced things. So things like I mentioned I did animation at, at the beginning. And animation, I love watching it. But creating it is is a different thing. It's like watching paint dry. It's tedious, tedious work. Um, it creates an amazing product. So the advice is find things that you like the process of doing, that you it, it, that the product you like, but the actual creation of it is what you're going to be doing most of the time. And so make sure you like that part. Um, another thing is be really mindful of the messages that are coming into you. So when you are in a startup, uh, when you're an entrepreneur, especially first-time entrepreneur, and you haven't been through the, the, the game yet, you don't know, you know what it takes to scale a company, you don't know a lot about how funding works and how different investors work, but you read the business press, you read Inc., you read Fast Company, and there's a value system that's propagated, like bigger, better, uh, you know, uh, always grow, you know, people who raise a lot of money are tremendous successes. Because uh, the, the press wants to have a story that sounds good. Just know that that's not, may not be your value system. That may not be what you want to do, right? Growing a company and managing people and growing an empire 
uh, is not to say that's what I did, but I, I, I grew it to a certain size, is um, it's a series of different skill sets that you encounter. And at some point, it may not be things that match up with what you really want to be or what who you really are. And you don't have a lot of time to master them by the time you need to make certain decisions, I would imagine. Right. No. You're, you're, you're learning as you go. I, yeah, I was just talking about this with somebody today, and they, I said, you know, the perfect place for people to be is a little bit out over their skis. Because, yeah, you're probably going to wipe out uh, every now and then, but you're always pushing yourself to see what you can, what you're cap- really capable of. Um, and so I wouldn't, I wouldn't take anything away. And I, I made tremendous mistakes, um, and really uh, mistakes of cluelessness, mistakes of um, the errors of judgment. But that's how you learn this stuff, you know. And I was just fortunate uh, to come out, in, you know, on the other side and. Um, you know, in a very, you know, in a success. And uh, even if I hadn't, though, I would have considered it a success because I, I learned so much and I understand so much more about myself, uh, you know, the things I want and, and, and think are important and how the, the world of business works and, and how the world of people works. Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned something about um, it's it's the process of creating something that you're going to be spending most of your time doing. And, and I think about advice I hear you know, if you, if you go to, like, a, a high school graduation or a college graduation, they, there's invariably that speaker that gets up and says, follow your passion. You know, mm-hmm. follow what you're passionate about. Do something that you love. Make a career out of it. If you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't know, because there are a lot of things that I love to do, but if I made them a career, if I made them, if I had to make a, a living doing that, if I had to commercialize some hobbies. I don't know if I'd like the hobbies anymore. Right. You know? And um, Elizabeth Gilbert, who uh, did Eat, Pray, Love, uh, wrote another book called Big Magic. And she addressed this, actually. She says, um, she put this very well, is like, there are different different pursuits that you have in your life. Uh, and your passion may be, it may be a career, but it may be a hobby. It may be a vocation. It may be uh, you know, you may have a job or you may have a career, but understand that just because you're passionate about it doesn't necessarily make it a, uh, something that you need to make a career out of. It can be a hobby. It can be something that is still very valid as a vocation without having to be a job or a career. And as you point out, sometimes, you know, and this was happened with, with me with music, it became a job. It became a grind and it just took away a lot of the just simple joy of playing music. Um, and I think you have to be very mindful of that is, is, uh, some things are just meant to be enjoyed as activities and not meant to be your commercial, your, your means of funding your life. (laughs) Right. Well, speaking of enjoyment, I can tell you what I enjoyed today Mm -hmm. and I was talking to you. Likewise. So thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me. And I think we're being summoned to uh, to something. The, the, the noise died down in the exhibit hall. So. Okay. I think they're doing raffles. Oh. Well, we better go see if we want anything. Yeah, I know I didn't. I don't think I'm eligible this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll see if I want something. Very nice talking to you, Steve. Thanks, Mike. Great talking with you as well. Thank you. Not that anybody saw the handshake. But. So there you have it, uh, right from Steve August's mouth. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to... 
that interview. And if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to send them over to me. My email address is mike at uncorkingastory.com. You could also visit the website, www.uncorkingastory.com. And if there's anybody you'd like to hear me interview, please uh, send them my way. Until next time, have a great day. 